Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. We've been away for a while, but we are back with some very important hot topics to discuss with the director, Emma Black. Good afternoon to you, Emma. Hello, David. How are you? Very good, thanks. How are things with you? Yeah, good. Um, I'm having a bit of downtime. I had a very busy 2022. Um, so really nice just to be at home for a little bit before it all kicks off again. And also joining us from sunny Lancashire is the conductor Helen Harrison. Good afternoon, Helen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, David, Emma and our lovely listeners. It's lovely to be here again. And you are always uh, going at a million miles an hour. Helen, what's currently in your head? Uh, the next the next thing, I am uh, had a fantastic run up to Christmas. I was conducting a snowman and a wonderful new piece with the Royal Northern Symphonia up at Sage Gates Head. And then I'm back up there with the Young Symphonia uh, this weekend. And then next week, really exciting project with Symphonia Viva, where uh, competitions and songs from the schools come together with the orchestra. So okay, exciting um, week ahead. Right, lots to talk about then. Let's start with the news that's been filling the airwaves, newspapers, televisions, the internet over the past few months. Uh, Arts Council England's reduction of funding to English National Opera, their insistence that the company move out of London whilst retaining the Coliseum, uh, and the reductions to funding uh, to Welsh National Opera on Glyndebourne, which is ending their touring in England. So huge opera news with huge ramifications. Um, before we get into the chat, let's just clarify some of the, the facts and the timeline around this, because it's been a very busy couple of months, lots, mm. lots going on. Um, so what we're talking about here is the core funding provided by Arts Council England to opera companies. Should be said, not all opera companies receive state support, but those that do tend to be the year-round companies. So the Royal Opera, English National Opera, Opera North, all those sorts of organisations. And 84% of that total funding for opera just goes to three companies, the Royal Opera House, English National Opera and, and Opera North. So the three companies who are invested quite heavily with uh, this kind of burden of doing a lot of that kind of opera work, that opera heft uh, here in England. The latest round of funding was for 2023 to 2026. The decisions were announced in November with Eno seeing their funding going from £12.8 million a year to zero. They were offered just over £5 million a year if they made plans to move out of London. But if they didn't want to do that or they couldn't do that, that funding was going to go down to zero from April this year. So following that announcement, English National Opera launched a big public campaign drawing on various friends in high places. Um, and they managed to secure a one year reprieve from Arts Council England with a decision on a further two years of funding due by the end of March. So this is still a very much a moving situation as it stands. ENO have got one more year to 2024 and then we'll see what happens. Um, there's loads of stuff we, we could talk about here. I mean, Emma, first off, kind of casting your mind back to, to November. I mean, what was your reaction when you heard that news? What was kind of your instinct when, when it was so, announced? So I really, I really remember the day because I, um, I'm trying to take a little break from social media and it's not going terribly well. Um, so I'd not really been on all day. And then I, as I was like making my dinner, kind of pulled up Twitter and I was like I'm sorry what on earth is going on so it just I obviously we don't know what happens behind closed doors but if we take here now at their word the fact that it came genuinely completely out of the blue just I still can't really wrap my head around it because as you said they are if we, if we want to call them the big three for want of a better term they're one of the big three and I think the work that they do Yes, there are two opera houses in London, 
but it's so different to what Covent Garden do. They are so much more about homegrown and and they do everything in English, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's your own personal opinion. And their outreach work, and I just, it felt bizarre and still feels bizarre. And kind of as more things kind of unfold. And then when Nadine Doris took to Twitter to basically say, nothing to do with me, this wasn't my idea. It just, I just don't understand it. So it's not a very considered answer but it's just it's weird it's really weird and it makes me if the more I think about it the crosser I become (laughs) (laughs) I mean as you say quite rightly there it's been a weird announcement and then even kind of weirder since to say you had the the former Secretary of State for for Culture Nadine Dorries saying this has nothing to do with me the Arts Council at fault and they're wrong you know this big debate in in Parliament last week where all of these MPs were standing Mm. up and saying that English National Opera needed more money they also said that lots of organisations needed more money, so yeah. hopefully they will increase arts funding. That's it's not going to happen, but that seems to be the. Um... You then had Stuart Murphy sort of inadvertently insulting all of the north of England by saying there's no culture yeah. going on here. It's been a really weird couple of months, um, but we're kind of at, at some sort of point now where you know we'll, we over the next couple of months we should have some some proper answers. Helen, we've had a bit of distance now from that initial shock, and it was originally driven by this desire, apparently, that English National Opera should leave London. And Manchester is the place that was that was talked about. I mean, what do you make of that idea of, you know, a new company or English National Opera coming and being another big company in the north of England? Does that make sense? I think the, the first thing is, is for any huge shift of, of any group of people from any business takes time, strategic management and planning, not least because of the implication involved, like in terms of contracts. Mm. And the the reality is we all know there's the levelling up agenda that's coming through. Um, but the timescales involved just just couldn't possibly work. And then if you are going to do a significant move of that ilk, I'm just putting it down into kind of business terms, like for any business, not talking really about opera, you'd have to do quite a lot of planning, due yeah. diligence, work out what the market was. Um, what are the possibilities and if we look at like a similar model which if we've got the BBC we've got seen a similar shift in terms of Radio 3 moving to the north if you remember remember a lot of the BBC Five Live Breakfast uh, more of the coverage is coming out of the Salford Studios where BBC Phil is I think we all know there's a need to have more quality jobs for everybody not just musicians of all kinds that are not just limited to the southeast to try and help level up, rebalance the country, and and also make make other families' lives livable. That they don't have to work in the capital and desperately try and even pay rent and not even have a hope of getting a, a house. So for me, I know we're here to talk about opera, but it's kind of looking at the bigger picture. The, these things need strategic planning, proper organisation, and and the time to do it considered and, and and clearly and as I think to echo Emma unless what we're hearing you know Andy Burner in Manchester um hadn't heard anything about it mm. um so so there's clearly things that are going on that we 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 will be privy to or seeing and I think there's going to be definitely more twists and turns obviously for me I think the other thing I want to say is that I think it's not what we want to be doing in order to have proper funding of of let's just say not just the arts but public services etc in the north of england and the places that needed the leveling up places not just in the north i have to say 
Um, even though obviously I, I care deeply about that, we need to look at the proper funding of arts. Having this kind of fight between between London and everywhere is is not in anyone's best interest. It's kind of a great smokescreen for us not really focusing on the real issues. And I find it really sad that we're in that position. And I hope that we can move out of that and be more collegiate as we get out of that. But the, the bottom line is people will be thinking, well, it, it's my job here in, in a couple yes. of months' time. Um, you, you can't really think about that my whole life. And yes, I want more up here. But I, I do want people to be moving here because they they want to be here and it's it's properly planned and it's going to work. And I think we know that that can happen because I think the BBC big move has been a, has been a success. It took time. Channel 4's moved to Leeds. But but these things, um, they're complicated, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you make a very good point there, Helen, that the, the kind of the whole thing about Arts Council funding is that it is, unfortunately, inherently very competitive. There is not a lot mm. of it, and there's a lot of people that want it. And obviously, within this particular funding programme, they've got to deal with theatre and music and opera and mm. dance and visual arts, and they do museums now, and they do libraries now. And so, you know, to, to defend the Arts yeah. Council uh, a little bit, you know, there's a lot of balancing things to try and put together there. Um, and I think that that issue of competition is always going to be there if that is the state funding that you're, you're looking for. I'm just going to throw some some more stats at you, not necessarily, uh, you know, looking for a, a response, but something to think about. Uh, one of the arguments made is that we have Opera North in Leeds that serves the north of England. Why do we need Eno in Manchester? Having a look today, if you add up, all the opera performances done by all opera companies in Manchester up until September, there'll be eight. Manchester <laughs> will have eight days of opera until September. Leeds, home of Opera North, will have 22 days of opera until September. We're not talking about um, a massive influx of opera mm. sweeping the north of, north of England. So I'm not saying Eno should be Manchester, but I think if we look at the bare facts, there is actually very little going on. What's even reducing that further are these cuts to Welsh National Opera and Glyndebourne. So yeah. Glyndebourne will no longer tour. Welsh National Opera will no longer visit Liverpool. Liverpool will no longer have any opera coming to it. This once one of the biggest opera cities of the UK and still one of the biggest population bases and, and cultural cities. Mm. I mean, Emma, E&O have put up a massive fight and they've managed to mm. claw something back. Is this a moment where we just keep fighting for what we've currently got? Or actually, is this an opportunity where we go, is there something else we should be looking at here? Is there actually some sort of argument here that we should be thinking about a different way that opera works, who exists, where they exist? Um, I mean, my instinct is to fight. I I think that especially the cuts that have been made to tour, to touring opera at Welsh and, and Glyndebourne, I mean, my, my very first, in fact, my first few handful of opera experiences were all touring um because I'm from Nottingham and that's where Opera North tour to because I honestly don't think I would have you know I don't think I would have gone if if it was not in my hometown the fact it was there it was on my doorstep there is you know there is a real draw there to kind of try something new um so I'm very sad incredibly sad that especially for Liverpool that they've just had both of their their two touring companies just just not going not going anymore i think that but on the flip side there probably is a maybe a better way of working it's just how on earth we fund it and if it's funding from the arts council and if that's going to be in constant flux then i don't think that's going to solve much 
the next few weeks could be interesting because for me that the the whole ENO and the touring question um is all is all part of the same question isn't it around reaching areas outside of London so it, it seems very connected to me so maybe I'm I've probably been too optimistic I would hope there was some way to to bring that back whether that's part of the overall thinking I don't know yeah, I I, th I think there's a question here, isn't it, about this, the, the geographical spread, the need for lots of different places to be able to see opera. I think for me as mm. well, there's a question, and I think this is why the number of companies Arts Council invest in is interesting, is that actually, you know, for example, if Opera North did reach every city in the north of England, is it healthy for us to have one organisation basically responsible for all the opera output for an area? Is that actually artistically satisfying to be relying on one organization essentially might be one artistic director deciding what huge mm. swathes of the country gets to see you know in a way that's why i'm interested how many smaller companies are supported because they're not might not be doing as much but what they're doing actually is diversifying the artistic offer and that's another issue of the vibrancy of the opera sector how many different voices mm. are we hearing mm. how many different types of work are we seeing and so the more I mean, that I, gets I, reduced I is also yeah yeah, I think also what is worth um, noting is that, you know, there were some new MPOs to the to the opera. I mean, uh, there were lots of new MPOs across the whole patch, but for opera, there was Pegasus and Opera mm -hmm. Close, which we can we can look at and know that they're doing excellent work in, in expanding the range and diversity of everything we do. Uh, but, of course, there's only so much to, to we'll do in terms of broadening the range of you you're right artistic direction what's the vision what's the ethos driving each company which does make such a difference in the way that organizations work and the, the type and the scale and also the the very appetite for that kind of work and where it sits in terms of the importance of their overall offering yeah and that's what you were saying at the beginning emma you know if we at the moment we have eno and the royal opera in london doing year-round opera mm. and actually they give you something very different if we just mm, had the royal different. opera house doing the year-round opera that's one particular type of work in a particular type of way in a particular theatre uh, yeah. and actually we're not just losing those two different houses we're actually look off two different ways of looking at opera you know I think things that I've there's been some things that I've seen at the Collie granted they are all operetta things I can think about like you know the recent Gilbert and Sullivan's but also the Merry Widow I don't think Covent Garden would I don't think Covent Garden has ever done a GNS and I'm not saying that's a bad thing I'm just saying that that's if they're not providing that but there is a huge yeah. love in this country for that work and to see a national company do it and they're doing it i must say they're doing it very well um and i think their plans to revive some hopefully i've heard on the grapevine i don't think i can say much more than that but that's all dependent on if they're still going to exist in a year's time yeah i mean one of the things that arts council said when trying to justify that decision i'll quote them directly they said a new generation of audiences is embracing opera presented in new ways in car parks pubs on your tablet New ideas may seem heretic to traditionalists, but fresh thinking helps the art form reimagine itself and remain exciting and meaningful to future generations of audiences. See, I've got it. My one thing on that is, again, back in lockdown, the thing that I watched and could actually see because I couldn't uh, was the drive live drive, mm -hmm. and uh, without um, doing down my my tough northern exterior, I was I was in tears because it's so moving. I mean. Who else would have done that? 
And it was in a car park. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the car park. So quite interesting. You know, they were right there in a fantastic car park and beamed it to everybody when when there was enough when we really needed that opera, we needed that art, we needed that that beauty. Hmm. The the question with a piece like that is is was is that purely a COVID response? Are people going to drive up in their cars in twenty twenty three? I mean, and obviously E and O have yeah. not have not really programmed anything particularly similar since. Was it was it a no. response that people had because of a moment, or is it actually a way for opera to look to the future? And going with the funding question, you know, does it make sense to have a big company like E and O that have a coliseum and they have the outreach program and apparently they're going to do things in car parks? Or does it make sense to have a different set of artists with different ideas doing well, those car park things? <laughs> um, well, well, this is, this is interesting because I, this is, you know, obviously Emma keeps saying it, uh, in some rooms that we're not in, let's hope the people who are having these discussions with the people who, who need and have the knowledge to make good decisions for the, for the industry is what I have everything crossed for. I'm going to finish this on on one note, which uh, might seem a bit pessimistic. Um, but hey, but hey, a few years ago, I was talking to Bill Banks Jones, director, artistic director of, of Tete Tete, and he said the future of opera was your, your kind of uh, private summer festivals and short seasons by the subsidised companies. I feel as though we've actually very quickly gone towards that model. Ian already, I think, is not entirely a twelve month round uh, chorus and orchestra anymore. Opera North seasons are getting shorter. Um, Scottish is, is, is much shorter than it than it used to be. Um, I mean, is do we again that kind of do we fight or, or do we not? Is this just kind of the future we've got, and is it a future that we want? So I I was at Opera North in the office in I started in the summer of twenty ten, so it's like however many months into the coalition government. You could argue we could trace all this for. Um, and then I was, and so I was there for the, you know, for George George Osborne's first budget, and and since then, Opera North. Is, I'm talking about them because they, I know them. Um, this when I think about the season that they did from autumn 2010 to summer 2011, it was busy. We did a lot of work, like in the spring season. I think we did three shows. I think we did Fidelio from the House of the Dead, and something else possibly Carmen. Carmen ran forever. So the fact that, and then within a year, by because I, I was in the office there for four years in total, by the time I left, they had reduced down to an, a full autumn season, a full winter season, and then a one-off semi-stage concert. Um, still doing a lot of orchestral output, and they still, and they, I think they have maintained that. But when I, you know, that is, that's now been the reality for them for now for 13 years. So I don't, this it, this potentially is now, for lack of a better phrase, their new normal. And I don't know if they'll, have, I'd love for them to go back to the days where they would do nine productions a year. But now I think we're at six and a semi-staged. I don't know if there's a way back from that. I think basically looking at the numbers, opera at the moment is, is sliding towards a place where if you like opera, you'll have to travel to go and see one of the subsidised companies. And then you'll get to go and spend a lot of money going to one or two summer festivals and that's mm. kind of where we are it's all very good for the arts council to invest in places like pegasus opera and birmingham opera but if they're developing interest for something that no one then has a chance to go on to see or mm. take part in 
there's a huge void potentially there. Um, Helen, do you have anything positive to finish this little discussion on? <laughs> it's really difficult because, again, I know this really, really comes down to people's jobs and lives. And obviously I know lots of people who who are impacted by this. The only, if I try and find a, a glass half, maybe not quite as half empty, is that maybe it is an opportunity for the smaller companies on the project grants. But as we all know, the project grants are, uh, you know, they're extremely competitive as well. And often the timescales are very tight. So it does make planning, which is, is so essential to offer in terms of A, getting the team you want, even get getting the venue in the tip getting the venue you need time and mm. often the, the timetables don't help so maybe there is there is an option but if I was looking at it strategically I think that the challenge would be and we've talked about this maybe before here is how how could we support you know these this team of smaller companies who are doing different work in different places in different ways with some sort of longer term plan, not an MPO, uh, with with all the uh, as well. Let's be clear: the, the the governance requirements around being a national portfolio an organisation are are substantial, rightly so, with public money. But is there is there a, another way that these smaller companies who who can maybe demonstrate a track record of their work can have maybe some more? funding that gives them a bit more time to strategically plan or even just be able to have more confidence in being able to book venues early because they know the funding is there. I, I don't know. I mean, David, I know you're obviously really close to this with um with your own company more than more than me. So I, I would entirely agree. I think there is a complete missing step between three yeah. organizations that have 84% of the money. Yeah. And then and then everyone else that's, you know, kicking around and scrabbling for the little bits. You just you cannot and I think yeah, I think it's really, plan on yeah. that model. It's really hard to plan to a really basic level of booking a musician to play in an orchestra when, when you don't have the funding. I, I also think as well, the reality is there's something about opera on the grander scale, and that's part of the thing. It is the whole visual it gets you that we we lo love, but at the same time, we also know that there's an intimacy and um, a closeness that these smaller companies bring that speak to people in different ways as yeah. as valid and we we and i'm a big fan of i'm not an or person i'm always an and and a little bit of funding goes a long way for the level of the project grant organizations and, and i can speak from experience in terms of the the projects i've been involved in um you're probably talking uh, i know it's still a lot of money for a lot of people but two thousand pounds for a small company wow that 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 means there could be an orchestra no, I agree. I, th I think I, you know, I'm really pleased because I know I, I like talking about money a lot because it's what I do, you know, day day, day in, it day out. It comes down to money, sadly. Yeah, but it is, it is yeah. so important. And I think to actually have proper discussions about what do we want to do with the money that we, we do have, where should it go, how should we, yeah. we invest, you know, I think these are really good discussions to have. Sadly, they've come after funding decisions have been made mm. rather mm. than before. We should have been talking about this a year ago, 18 months ago, but... But interestingly, the, at the moment, there isn't really a mid-tier strategy, really. Yeah. It's Project Grants MPO, isn't it, as I see it, unless I'm wrong. Yeah. And actually, strategically, for the entire arts world, not just opera. Um, yeah. a, middle, that, a middle tier. Um, uh, uh, it might not even be, at the moment, a middle tier. It might be those projects that just need even, even not even three years funding, two years. The other thing I would say, the, 
other thing is the elephant in the room of core funding. Without core funding, none of the small projects can happen because guess what? There's not even a body there to do them. And then we get back into the whole issue of how many musicians, creatives are working for free in their own time, mm. even before they get to put in the actual production on. And that, again, leads right back into issues of uh, access, barriers, diversity, equality. Yeah. But we all, we, the thing is, we're, we're all on the same whole same song sheet here um and we need to somehow still get this message out of our creative kind of studio but it, we know it's hard yeah and again last thing i would say that's what's at some point i hope we can not be talking about the north versus london and london versus yeah. the north i want us to be talking about all of our all of our collective expression through the culture and arts of all kinds Com- completely agree so let's uh, uh, for the the basics now. You know, I've had their little reprieve. Let's let's check in again in a couple of months and see what's happening after that. But let's keep these discussions going because, as you say, that these decisions don't just mean where does someone perform. You know, it it all those things. I think what you said there, Helen, spot on about how all of these mm-hmm. are related to things about access and inclusion and and you know yeah. opportunity. They're all all tied in. So let's. Yeah. Uh, pick up in a couple of months, see where Ian are up to then, and uh, let's keep the funding chat going. A little quiz, a little palate cleanser after that discussion. Um, this is a very small little little quiz. Uh, can you tell me, please, either of you, what opera is this? Are you ready? Is it a Verdi? That's not a Verdi. I'm out. <laughs> it just really remind me of the Rossini at the Aria for Two Cats. <laughs> well, um, I'll let you know. It was, a, it was a bit of a trick question, I'm afraid. That was a, a wonderful video I came across the other day. That is uh, Dudley Moore and Sir Peter Ustinov improvising. I thought it was Dudley Moore. I improvising a recitative. <laughs> uh, <laughs> quite perfectly. Um, Have you seen? Dudley that is Moore quite scary, does Little Miss Britain, so it's Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, but as a Britain, Benjamin Britain aria. No, but I know, what I, I know what I'm doing oh, when we finish recording. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, apologies for that, but I just, I really enjoyed that the other day. <laughs> right, moving on. There has been a lot of buzz for the new film Tar, in which Kate Blanchett plays a classical conductor accused of abuse. Uh, this negative portrayal of a female conductor seen it come under criticism from figures such as Marin Alsop, but praised by others, including uh, your good friend Helen Alice Farnham, for shining a, a spotlight on uh, female conductors. Um, before we start, has anyone seen the film yet? I've not, not seen it yet. No, we're all in the not yet category then. Um, but Not much use to you, sorry. Well, it's, it's fine because the, the content of the film is maybe another discussion of the Operacast Film Club, but actually there is a discussion more broadly around the opportunity of a film like this 
to have that spotlight on on female mm. conductors. Um, Helen, looking at it positively, I mentioned that Alice Farnham she wrote an article for the Guardian saying that she's seeing a lot of a lot of progress for female conductors, and actually that this film is a great way of, I suppose, kind of normalising <laughs> seeing women on a on a on a on a podium. I mean, is is this something you think we can take positives from? And again, you know, along with Alice, are you you seeing those kind of uh, positives? People coming coming through. Well, I think I think maybe another thing to maybe mention was, and I think Kate Blanchett uh, said this herself that if the film had been made about um, a, a conductor who who behaved like this, who was a man, you know, that fits the the archetypal the archetype. I think that's a, a tautology, uh, the the stereotype. Uh, but I mean, you'd have to re have a look at Kate's interview for that. But it is a piece of drama. It's it's a piece of fiction. It, it's it's a movie. You know, if we look at other areas, there's always like lots of movies about everything else. There's bound to be things that jar of any when you're looking at your own industry p- portrayed in a film. It's very rare. It's spot on. Um, so I haven't seen it, and obviously I'm aware of both sides. Um, but in terms of where we are with women conductors, I think um, recent stats, it might have been in the article, is it 2017? I think there was um, representation of, let me just let me just check a number, um, 2017, 5.5% of conductors on agents' rosters were women. Uh, today, are you ready for this? It's a whopping 11%. So w- things are improving. I mean, I've I've seen it, but then I am also conscious that so many of the women conductors we know we're very supportive. We kind of look out for each other, so we tend to notice mm. each other. We're not there, but things are are definitely improving. I can't, and that is great. But for me, and we talk about this a lot. I mean, I was really lucky to be on the the Royal Philharmonic Society Women Conductor Program that Alice has spearheaded um, with the program at Sage Gateshead and. We're all, we all talk a lot about the fact that it's making sure this change is permanent, that it's not just, oh, this is a, a nice thing to have. It, you know, the audience is it's, it's in tune with the zeitgeist. It's making it permanent. And as you can see, with 11% of women conductors on rosters, that's probably not where it needs to be. We are getting more women through who've got the level of training they need. And also the, the final thing will be, you know, uh, where it's we've got more music directors, you know, women in actual, mm. actual leadership positions in orchestras and opera companies, and, and we, we, you know, there's a there's a couple around, but they're they're not we're not there yet. I mean, I mean, this this is what Marion Alsop has to say. She said uh, to have opportunity to portray a woman in that role and to make her an abuser for me that was heartbreaking. There's so many men, actual documented men, this film could have been based on, but instead it puts a woman in the role. And gives it all the attributes of, of of those men. I mean, Emma, res- responding to that, you mean, do you think it's unfortunate that this is the way we have a, a big film, you know, BAFTA, Golden Globe, probably Oscar, big nominated film with a female conductor, and this is how she is portrayed, or is that that's that's the drama of the film? Where, you know, we shouldn't get too het up about <clears throat> that being the representation that's that's gone for. I mean, I imagine. I said I've not seen it. I imagine it's probably a much more interesting film to watch. The fact that she is not the nicest person in the world, um, because otherwise, you know, what what would, not what would be the point, but what would be the point? Um, it is inside. I completely see where Marin Alsop is coming from, but I also thought um, Alice Alice Farnham's uh, article in the Guardian was was really brilliant. Of obviously really brilliant because she's brilliant. Um, but the whole that yes, it is it's shining us it's shining a spotlight and actually women conductors do exist. 
and that actually it's they should become it should be becoming more more the norm i mean i do remember when it was um you know last night was it last night the promise that marion also did 10 years yeah. ago and there was rightly so a huge you know huge press interest in that the, the other thing maybe worth thinking about apparently and again none of us seen the film the original uh role uh of the, the main job of the was going to be um um a trader on the stock exchange like oh, city floor in, in america and so it's quite interesting that the film started life with actually not being a conductor and then the, the position of leadership shifted to a conductor so uh, that would be interesting to know more about but sadly i um although i will i'm just have to say this i was at the book launch with kate blanchett was there i didn't i didn't get time to ask her about it so sorry sorry folks <laughs> helen you've, you've got to play the role of journalist wherever you are now. this is very important um yeah i mean i i think for me again we keep saying i haven't, I haven't seen it yet but I think there is something about all publicity is good publicity. I think yeah, a huge absolutely. film with a female conductor in the lead that's trying to put that as something that is, you know, quote, normal, I think is could be very, very positive. Um, and I don't know if you've seen any of the images. There's a new Leonard Bernstein biopic coming mm, out. With Bradley Cooper. That looks great. Yeah. Big, big fan. Looking forward to that very much so. There's been a major breakthrough for the performing arts workers this month with the main workers' unions, Equity and the Independent Theatre Council achieving new pay deals. This includes increases in the weekly rates of pay as well as better paying conditions for those undertaking touring work. Opera, however, sits in a weird place with its own pay deals, which are still less than those equity rates. The musicians dealing with another union altogether. Emma, Opera has long treated its workforce in a, in a, in a weird way. And coming from a theatre mm -hmm. background, I always found it very odd you get paid for your performances you don't get paid for any rehearsals it's, 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 it's absolutely bonkers i mean surely you know with all of these things around unions and pays and better ways of working this is something that's going to change surely yes no i hope so um because yes you're right this, this the way that singers get paid i i must admit i was incredibly naive because i started out working for the chorus of opera north and they're salaried so I wasn't aware of how principal artists get paid. And then when I made the move to freelance and the way that a director or an assistant director normally gets paid, which is very nice, is um, you often get your first the first third of your fee when you sign the contract. So you've basically been pre paid to prep, which is brilliant because you do have to give up time <laughs> to prepare um, and time you know, and your time has value. And then it's then normally the next third on first day of rehearsal and then your final third on opening night. And I incredibly naively assumed that's what happened for singers. And as you're right, as you say, David, it's not it. You get paid per show, which means that I suddenly made so much sense why suddenly lots of singers who are on contract are actually asking for time off to go and do, you know, two day concert work because that's they're getting paid for that straight away. And I was vaguely hopeful with that one of the things that would change after the pandemic or once we returned to the workforce was that this way of being paid would be properly looked at because there were singers, so many singers that I know that were halfway through rehearsal periods. Some companies were brilliant and honoured those performance bees even though those performances didn't happen, but they were under no obligation to do so. And I think a lot of people were left in a really awkward situation. Um, so this move with equity, I think, is is really good. 
I don't know how many opera singers, as, as freelancers, I don't know how many of them are represented by equity, but I'm hoping that doesn't mean that they won't benefit from this. Yeah, I mean, I, Helen, I find it, again, very odd that, again, singers, most aren't with equity. There, there's a different rate for singers, which I think is currently a minimum of 450 a week, something like that, which still remains the, the rate. But then you've got the Musicians' Union who pretty much deal with orchestral musicians, and they yeah. uh, seem to negotiate pretty fairly decent deals generally, certainly compared to, to, to singers. Um, I mean, what, what is this difference between a singer and an instrumentalist? Why do they get treated so differently? Well, Why are you I, special, I, Helen? That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Why do you think you're special? Well, it's still, I still can't understand it myself. Like, you're totally right the way that singers don't get paid to the performance. No, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I can't say all. All I can think is a historical thing that, for some reason, is still here, because in in terms of having to be at rehearsal and then be it's it's the, I mean, it is the same thing. You've got to rehearse. You've got to perform. There's no real difference in that sense. So I really can't understand it. I'm I'm like I'm, I'm scratching my head. And again, how does this help us have a workforce who can actually? do the job and, and not be totally stressed out with their brains about just actually be able to eat and live and run their lives. It's totally crazy. It has, I mean, Emma, surely it's got to be history, do you think? Or Actually, I genuinely don't know. Do you know, David? Well, I, I think historically there's there's more, and it still exists, um, particularly on the, the continent, but, but still here that, you know, singers won't bother doing rehearsals. They'll just fly in and do a show uh, or do a yeah. couple of shows. So, that, I mean, there is there is a reason why people get paid per performance. And particularly if you're with a company and you're doing six shows, but that's spread over eight weeks. It doesn't, obviously, you have to have a different way yeah. of being paid. But what makes no sense to me is you don't get paid for eight weeks of rehearsal. And then when you do a show, you get some money, you know? Yeah, yeah. What, what the, the existing agreements that exist for opera um they they assume that people are getting paid some sort of weekly rate to to rehearse which is said at about yeah, about 450 pounds and then there is a certain you know fee for a session or a fee if you're a cover or you know w- whatever it might be yeah. um but we know that most companies don't don't pay like that um and we are going to do a, a special uh fairly soon about about paying the industry not just these conditions but actually the, those actual rates as well there are these standard mm. rates but we know that many companies, and not naming names here today, but we know that there are some very big companies that pay very, very little, particularly for their mm-hmm. choruses. Absolutely shocking. Goes back to this access inclusion argument, um, mm-hmm. Helen. There are some really terrible things, terrible things going on. Um, something else I wanted to to pick up on briefly, because I say we are going to come back to this another time, is this um, idea of the kind of pay to play model where they have companies have schemes where where singers pay to take part in something um and i'm not picking on this organization it's just so happened that the other day i saw them advertising um the assemble orchestra opera academy is 800 pounds for a singer to take part in one of their productions um and i know there are arguments that you get coaching and whatnot but i, I don't know about about you emma and again you're more experienced in this than i am but for a singer that's had many many years of conservatoire BA, MA, maybe done an opera school, mm. to then still be in a position where you're paying to get on a stage in front of an audience that will then pay the company. It just it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, it does it doesn't make any sense. Um and I think I 
if, if I'm putting a very kind of optimistic spin on this, I hope that these schemes are kind of aimed more at those maybe that they've just done their bachelors or maybe just starting on that they're still quite so I've had a little bit of experience with this that I've um I've worked for the Lyric Op Studio Weimar um as an assistant director and I was paid. Um but the singers on that program it's a very intensive four week program. You basically you learn you learn a show, a classic show. Um in those you, you I think we had three weeks of rehearsal and a week of show. Um but you pay you pay to be there and it's very much sold as a come and live in beautiful Weimar and it's very beautiful for four weeks you get trained incredibly well you will perform with an orchestra you will learn something from the canon and you will do a complete role and that you know if you're starting out as a singer um especially if I guess if you're at music college and maybe you won't get a chance to be Pamina because there's like a thousand other Paminas in your music college but you get to go to Germany for the summer and do a very classic production of Magic Flute and you get Pamina under your belt. One of the reasons I accepted my second role there, my second season there, was because we were doing they were doing Figaro, and I'd never done Figaro. I was like, I, I well, I'm getting paid, so it's a slightly different thing. But also, like, I'd really like to learn Figaro <laughs> and be in beautiful Weimar for a month. But I think, you know, I've, I'm very lucky. I've never had to look at it from a singer's point of view. And I think if you're privileged enough that you can do it, obviously it's brilliant. But when I think about the people that were on those programmes, they were all very much from very similar backgrounds of very similar, you know, level of wealth. Yeah. Uh, but well, I guess- well, A, they're paying for the programme, but B, they're not having to work at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So double, so double whammy. The other yeah. thing that I have seen, um, I think this, this case is slightly different, is where um, a company will say, well, there's, this is the fee, but if if like we do brilliantly, it will actually go up. We'll share, we'll share. But this is the minimum you're going to get. And actually, that I think is quite different to what we talk about here, where you're literally paying to play. I think yeah. as well it's different if you're paying for a course where you're there to learn. But then if you're, I guess they would argue, are you getting to perform? But then you, it, it is, it, yeah, it's getting into a grey area yeah. depends on the, where the money and how it's being used well we all know there's, there's mm-hmm. such a fine line between yes a learning opportunity and exploiting mm-hmm. opportunity i think with a lot of these and i'm not i'm not talking about this this ensemble orchestra one particularly because I, 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 don't, I don't know the company but in general there are those companies that want to put on a show need to find a way of paying for it and so sell it as mm-hmm. a training opportunity um so they can get people to give give them some some money, basically. Um, I mean, as I say, we're going to look at this in, in, in more detail soon. So if you're listening and you've got any comments, questions, stories you want to share, you know, please do do get in touch. This is a huge thing, and it goes back to what we were saying uh, at the beginning of the pod. These all relate to access into the industry. Mm-hmm. People are going to afford to pay for things and not have to work at the same time. It, it continues to to build those barriers to getting into to opera for, for artists. So really important things we need to be uh, looking at. Uh, in potentially brighter news, uh, apparently TikTok, fashion and video games are all making classical music more appealing to younger listeners, according to the BBC and the Royal Philharmonic Society. Um, Emma, I'm not on TikTok, so that culture <laughs> is kind of passing me by. Um, I mean, do, do you think opera and classical music is becoming you know, kind of coolest, so to speak. The the article on the BBC website we'll, we'll put in the um the show notes. Uh, it did pick some individuals that, that do seem to be doing some quite mm. quite fun things. I love that you think I'm on TikTok, David. I'm so not, I'm not. I've, I just out of the two of you, I just decided that Emma was slightly more likely to be on TikTok. 
no, no. I'm not, I'm I, not, I, are you taking that as a compliment, Emma? Well, I don't. I, <laughs> um, no, I, I'm not on TikTok and I don't, I don't know if TikTok is really for me. I had a medium significant birthday not that long ago. I'm now no longer eligible for various young directing programs. It's fine. Um, so, no, I think, yeah, no, the article was really, was really fascinating. And actually I had heard, because it seemed that he was everywhere on social media about a year ago. Cannot remember his name. I'm so sorry. But the guy he was doing, Largo, um, from Barbara de Seville over... I'm told Kendrick Lamar um, in his car. Have you, have you seen this video? No, it is no, I haven't because I'm, always I'm not wonderful. <laughs> well, I think it's like on Twitter and, okay. all, and other I am on, I am on Twitter. things. I mean, I think I think classical music. I, how, I think it's always had a potential to be cool. I mean, there was that moment. This is more David scene, you know, Italia '90. You know, the Ness and Dormer was suddenly everywhere, and it's never really gone away. Um, I don't know if Pat Barotti is cool. I was three in the ni- in 1990, so I wasn't really <laughs> aware of what was going on. Um, no, I, it's, I think there are always going to be young people, God, I sound ancient, who are going to like be interested in a slightly quirky, I think. Not quirky, obviously, but just like not like mainstream things. But then you then actually find that actually classical music is also quite mainstream. But I do like, I mean, I'm always up for people trying to diversify it and trying to find new ways to approach it and kind of I loved there was uh, a pianist who was doing like 25 minute concerts every day during lockdown just as a way I think just to um you know just to keep her keep her practice alive her practice alive um my mum and dad in Nottingham um lived next door to the Canon Mason family and have done since the Canon Mason family moved in when I was about 15 um which it brings me so much joy because a they're like the loveliest family in the world and also like we know this um (laughs) but definitely during lockdown on thursday evenings like that little section of the road did the clap and then most thursdays the canon masons just sat outside and played bits and pieces and my parents said you know that's just really they really treasure those even though it was a really terrible time for the entire world there were like these little pockets of joy and, you know, and that's that's the thing that music can do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the other people in that BBC article was was Joseph Olinsky, the counter tenor. Um, and again, mm. I think he's he's someone. We're all going to sound very old in this discussion when we think of those those new tools to engage younger people, like TikTok <laughs> or in, Instagram or you know YouTube. I know these are not new things, but actually, you know, there are singers. Him and you know, uh, Cameron Kim is someone who we interviewed mm, a number of years yeah. ago. Who again is just doing things in a, in a way that does cut through to a different type of audience. I mean, Helen, going back to those Arts Council comments about opera wants to be in pubs and car parks. Um, you know, if there is potentially an audience we can grab there, is is the way to do it to try and pull them into an opera house and put them in front of this model that we've had for, I was going to say generations, hundreds of years, or is it actually about, you know, maybe trying to do, trying to do opera in that, in that different way that might meet people where they are? Well, I think the, the first thing is, I think a lot of the young people finding classical music, it's because they can just go online tiktok and everything is yeah. there so, can, yeah. so you can kind of explore what you like without yeah. anybody you know to see what you're going to making judgments um you go no one's no, no one's making a judgment about you when you're listening in the concert hall or anything 
So there is something really interesting about exploring the nature of the spaces, which we're all doing. But more and more, we've said this a million times, yaddy yaddy, but even for me, I'm not really, I, I do love like going to concerts, but I still find sometimes I want to like be more expressive to what I'm hearing and mm. I, I'm not really allowed to be, you know. And I think being in amongst the musicians is is people want to be feel the part of it. And still, we've always got those barriers. I'm just thinking actually back to the, the piece we did at, at Serge Gates with, with Ronald and Throne in a new piece. And one of the things was brilliant. We managed to break down the fourth wall with the way we brought in one of the instruments. I'm not going to spoil it in case we see it again. And it was fantastic because basically it was in the theatre. It was it really changed the feeling. So I think trying to bring them into, we, we're going to have to be far more creative. Yeah. And I'm well, even saying that somebody really sometimes feels at concerts, it is very passive. Yeah, let's go back to what we were saying before, it's that multiplicity of experience, mm. which I still don't think we really have. Yeah. And, and maybe that's... Maybe that's not again com existing companies trying to do things in different ways, but actually trying to find new people to come and bring something different to the table. Yeah. How we do that? Open question. Now, in a new feature, uh, we're going to look at a different hidden bit of opera history each month. Uh, today, we're going to stay on topic and look at the UK's first foray into the state funding of opera back in 1930. So a bit of context, 19th century opera in England. You've got your big theatres in London, Covent Garden, Drury Lane, doing opera year round, that kind of grand Italian opera. But you've also got tons of touring companies every week going up and down the UK, bringing programmes to towns and cities. You know, people like the Doily Cart Company doing GNS, the Carl Rosa Company, the Grand Italian Opera Company. If you were in any city of any sort of size in the 19th century, Every couple of weeks, you would have an opera company come and visit, and they would do seven or eight different operas in a week. So Monday you'd see Meister Singer, Tuesday you'd see Figaro, Wednesday you'd see The Bohemian Girl. There was just there was so much going on. It was amazing, and all of these opera companies were all private enterprises. So Europe had a lot of state funding, but here in England, every every company was its own private enterprise, having to make money for itself. Early twentieth century comes around, and this model is wearing a bit thin. There's only one company that can sustain itself, and that's the Dolly Cart Company, who purely put on GNS. There were growing calls for state funding of, of opera and what people call grand opera. So shifting forward 100 years, this is kind of the same argument where we're having now. Opera, grand opera, for want of a better term, needs state support. Popular opera, musical theatre, let's say, uh, is able mm -hmm. to kind of go in its own way. But 20th century, people are starting to see the need to have the state intervene in some way. And the person that takes this on the most out of anyone is Sir Thomas Beecham, the conductor. He has his own... I need to interject. He actually um, gave concerts. He was actually conducted Blackpool Symphony that I also conduct. And it was at Russell School right on the coast. So ah, there's a connection. Direct I've... lineage. My, yeah. my clarinet <laughs> teacher used to like to tell me I'm something like the great, 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 great grand pupil of Brahms or something. <laughs> some sort of... <laughs> stupid pretend lineage that apparently that's 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 that but there we are yours, yours is more interesting um 
so Thomas Beecham, he took this interest in how do we fund opera differently? He had an opera company that toured in the 20s, but it folded due to financial considerations, couldn't fund it anymore. Um, and so in 1927, he created something called the Imperial League of Opera, which is not like a supervillain organization. It was this idea of creating something that would take um, subscriptions from people across the UK. He wanted 150,000 people to pay 10 shillings a year for this company. Um, and depending on uh, how many people in each city, uh, how much they put in would depend on how much opera basically that's, that city got. But he wanted essentially to kind of crowdfund. This was a struggle. However, one year in, the New York Times reported on progress. Um, so after 12 months of trying to do this, they still needed at least 15,000 people in London, 3,000 in Manchester, 1,500 in Birmingham, Liverpool and Leeds, and 1,000 in Edinburgh and Bradford. See, what I want to know in my finance head on is, were the quotas? Because if you look at those numbers, that's, is that in relation to the, po- is, what's the size of the whole in relation to the population? Do you see what I'm saying? I'd love to know that. Do you mean in terms of the population of the, the area compared to how many yeah. people we used to so, sell? So what was that gap they were looking for? Was it proportionate to the population or or did did Manchester actually not need that many more because, you know, they were like really up for it and saw the value? Well, I think it's fair to say that more money was needed in London because the base of the company was still going to be in London. That was mainly where they were going to do things. Um, am I allowed to say hashtag twas ever thus? No. Has, yeah, you can do <laughs> That one of the one of the lessons hopefully of this is that yes nothing has changed. Um, what's really interesting of that list list of cities actually is, is Bradford. Um, originally they were going to go to Glasgow, but there was so little interest in Glasgow um, that it got switched out for Bradford. So despite Bradford being very close to Leeds, um, that became one of the new potential. But a year in, they still needed at least twenty thousand people to, to to sign up. At the same time as this was happening, we've got a Labour government, Ramsay Macdonald. And the government are finally persuaded to put some money into opera. And they decide the way to do this is to create a new company in 1930 called the Covent Garden Opera Syndicate, a new company completely created for this purpose. And they're going to do operas at Covent Garden, funnily enough. So they're going to receive £25,000 a year from the Treasury, which is sort of funneled through the BBC in a really weird way of, of doing it, but essentially state support to put this company together. There is a fascinating article in the stage newspaper from 1930 about the parliamentary debate. Um, we learn, among other things, that no other opera company was going to be supported. No opera company was consulted about this. Um, and that it was recognised that by supporting one company, it would likely mean that all the other opera companies were going to fold when the state started to intervene in the, in the opera sector. There was huge umbrage taken that state support for one company was going to be for a company in London rather than the touring company. And there was widespread anger from MPs of every party who objected to plans to fund opera when the country was undergoing financial struggles. So again, nothing new. Um, going back to Sir Thomas, he tried for three years and could not get enough money to get the Imperial League of Opera on its way. So what they ended up doing was joining forces with this new Covent Garden company to kind of help benefit from that subsidy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the subsidy ran for two years. Throughout that two years, there was constant griping. There was constant arguments about the fact that the state was, was funding opera, including whether the money was used purely to pay off debts and whether it was being used to pay foreign artists rather than British yeah. ones. Their response was that, in the two years that they operated, they supported 560 British artists compared to 15 foreign artists. Um, whatever you think, compare that to the Royal Opera today, and that's quite an interesting uh, yeah. balance of, of the artists uh, being presented. 
So by late 1932, two years into the subsidy, it was withdrawn. It was no longer sustainable. MPs constantly criticised it. Newspapers constantly criticised it. And after two years, it ended. It was said there were huge cheers in the Commons when it was announced. And so it would take until after World War II for the UK to finally come around to the idea of regular state investment to the arts. We had a completely new company formed, the Royal Opera, 1946. Money then started going to Sadler's Wells, which would, of course, become English National Opera. And we now have this uh, state funding of opera that, that still goes on today. Uh, so that's our first little uh, hidden history corner, a little bit of the first time we tried to support opera in the UK. And as you said, Helen, ever this. Yeah, it's kind of, mm. did you pick that one especially, David? Today? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a, maybe a cautionary tale, but I think... You know, I mean, you know, one of my one of my big uh, hobby horses is is this history of opera and how things have changed. But it was a very very short period from mm. tons of opera everywhere. Yeah. I mean, again, that thing, you know, you could go see seven different operas in a week, and you could go and I, do that basically every month. It was astonishing, and how very quickly that changed to the state yeah. needing to intervene. It was a very mm. very quick transition. There must be. A- even deeper dig because um, I'm, I'm not a, enough of a historian of any ilk. What happened socially that changed that model? There must have been something that happened that made it not viable. Maybe it was a tax on theatres or some. What happened to basically take take the um, the ability to generate profit out of that model? What was the? I'd love to know that. There must be something in socioeconomic. Yeah. Something must have happened. Yeah. What was it? I think there's more digging to be done. I mean, undoubtedly, uh, yeah. undoubtedly, one of the things that happened was not quite Gilbert and Sullivan themselves, but there was a new type of theatrical entertainment that people loved, which was GNS. It was the beginning of music halls. It's yeah, the beginning of a different. And, yeah. and, and the ability of more people of more regular means to go and decide what they wanted to spend their money on. So, yeah. actually, with the Industrial Revolution, with, with the, all of these kind of things happening, was... And like the rise of vaudeville, and also probably the rise of cinema. Like, rise of cinema. You know, okay, ginger yeah. for yeah. like however much you would go to go to cinema. Why would you not? Yeah, more just more things that people could. I do. think yeah, but, and I think that's an interesting thing we talked about it before, even with the young people. Like, there's just so many things. There's so many ways you can spend your time and yeah. your money, and they will always continue to grow, won't they? Because our, our imagination as humans is limitless, so the, the amount of things we find to keep ourselves from from doing useful things is li- unlimited. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah. So ho- but, hopefully, yeah. hopefully that's been been interesting. Anything else you want us to do, uh, discuss in future pods? Do let us know. Helen, I believe you've got us a hidden gem for today. Yeah, and I have to I have to admit that it's come from my symphonic work really. I recently just performed Amy Beach's Gaelic Symphony. Um and Amy Beach, um, she was uh eighteen seventy-six to nineteen forty-four. First American female co- composer with a huge amount of work, a uh, body of work behind her. She wrote Fantastic Symphony in eighteen ninety-six, the Gaelic Symphony, which um just performed recently and the 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 response we got from both players and audiences why on earth has like we we where have we not been playing this fantastic full of depth color emotion a fantastic finale just so uplifting um f- unfortunately she only wrote one opera um which I, I, it's a bit sad because I, she was so prolific it wasn't performed in a lifetime 
Um, sadly, it was only performed in 1947. I think it only got its first professional performance in something like 1995. So one act opera called Cabildo, um, full of folk songs, got pirates in it. I believe it's quite a lot of fun. It was revived recently. I think one of my colleagues, Frenzy Shawnee, um, revived it with, I can't remember the name, coming off the time at the top of my head. But I thought it's worth a shout because she wrote so much that... Um, I'm really glad she did write an opera, um, slightly off topic. I'm always really sad that Brahms didn't write an opera because I love Brahms so much. Why didn't he write an opera? It's so sad. I know he hated it, but come on. Anyway, <laughs> so there we go, a little bit. Yeah, slightly off topic. I agree. Brahms' opera would have been fantastic. Have you heard the the List opera? No. You know, a couple of years ago, they sort of uh, rediscovered this opera that List wrote, some academics yeah. in um, in Cambridge, mm. and they put on, I think they put on a concert performance. There's definitely extracts you can hear, and it's, uh, it's, it's what you'd hope. Uh, thanks, Helen. So here is uh, some of Amy Beach's Cabildo. And so to end, as ever, with the OperaCast quiz, um, you're going to be doing it separately this week, so there's no there's no shouting out. Um, who would oh, like to no. go? Who would like to go first? Can I just say this is like the ritual humiliation bit? So, and I always, I always <laughs> hope that no one's going to listen to this and think, oh, we can't hire her. She clearly knows something about opera. <laughs> can I? I'll can, go first. Tell right, <laughs> because you volunteered to go first, you may have either the 20th century or the 19th century. Ooh. Um... I'll be brave and take 20th century. Okie dokie. So this is a little game of higher or lower. Um, okay. I'm going to give you uh, an opera and the date but it was premiered. Are you going to do like, sorry, I'm talking over, which is very bad with Postcard. Are you going to do like Bruce Forsyth? Higher, uh, I, lower. You know, do you remember that from Play Your Cards? Yeah, right? I don't have any cards, unfortunately. Right, but okay. The same, the same kind of idea goes. So I'll right. give you okay. an opera and its year of premiere. And you need uh -huh. to tell me if it was uh, higher, as in nearer to the present day or lower as in further into the past um okay. so there are five possible five points uh, on offer and okay. we're going to start so your, your starting kind of uh, point is samuel barber's anthony and cleopatra which was 1966 if you say so okay cool let's go <laughs> open the open the new metropolitan opera in 1966 okay okay so uh higher or lower please for verdi's falstaff oh lower Lower, yeah. A nice easy yeah. one, hopefully, to start with. 1893. False stuff. 1893. I would have got that. that a higher or lower for Janice Geeky? I think that's early 1900s, so higher. Correct. Janice Geeky, 1918. Next is Peter Grimes. I know this one. That's 1945 or six, so that's higher. Higher, 1945. Excellent. Two more to go. Three points so far. Uh, the next one is Lulu. Now, I always associate that with, like, cabaret. <laughs> no, cabaret. <laughs> so I'm going to say, like, that's from, like, the 30s. So I'm going to say lower. Strong work, 1937. You've got one more to go for the full five points, okay? okay. Uh, so Lulu, 1937, the final one is The Rake's Progress. 
Oh, ah, uh, Stravinsky. Yes, this is designed to get harder as it goes along. So I'm glad that we're we're stuck on the last one. I think that might be twenties. So I'm going to say lower. Final hurdle, I'm afraid. That was 1951, the Rake's Progress. Oh, I'm so far out. I shouldn't it's, have said what I thought it was. And it's, be cool. it's, I think... it's surprisingly late. I know. That's it. It's in there to, okay. to, to was at least Was he making work in the 20s? I don't sound like like a baby know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. Light of Spring was 1913. There we go. Fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm redeemed. Uh, so good, four points, excellent work. So Helen, so you've been nominated to have the uh, the nineteenth century. So you say the year, and then you're put putting the next opera to the year you've just given. Correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. So maximum five points. So uh, Helen, you're starting with a Marjorie Figaro, seventeen eighty six. So I'm looking for a higher or lower for Eugene Onegin. Higher. Higher, correct. Nearly 100 years higher, 1879. Uh, higher or lower? In the same year for Sony for strings, but that's another story. <laughs> well, yeah. well, that's extra piece of knowledge, but no more points. No right. no more conductory points. Uh, <laughs> after Onyegin, we're looking, please, for Lelice d'Amore. Uh, earlier. Correct. 1832. Two points. The next one uh, is Guno's Faust. I'm going to say it later. Correct, 1859. Three points. The next one, please, after Faust, is Beethoven's Fidelio. Earlier. Correct, 1805. One more to go. And that is the Barber of Seville. Earlier. Following the final hurdle again, 1816, Barber of Seville. Uh, so you've both tied on uh four points uh sorry actually, i actually quite like that quiz because i actually thought i did quite well on that one so did i don't like you, did you like that one i felt it was more yeah i feel i i feel you like right. I I... 20th century than i realized so that's good because I, I basically feel I just know about Britain and that's it. So that's good. <laughs> uh, I didn't prepare a tiebreaker, but I've just, I've just found one very quickly. Uh, have you both got a piece of paper? Great. Or, or even... on my phone. Type on your phone. Then... Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, please, can I have the premiere of Das Rheingold? What year? Oh, um, th this will be wrong. I'm not um... looking yet. Right. Yeah, I'm ready. Great. And I... reveal. Oh, my God. You're both so incredibly... Helen, you are 20 years out, and Emma, you are 19 years out. Oh! <laughs> well, I, I don't, I'm quite, you know, that's quite amazing. 1869, uh, so we had an 1815, we had an 1889. Um, so, Emma, by uno year, Not you are much. the winner of today's quiz. <laughs> Congratulations, but four points for both of you in the quiz. Well done. Well An done. honourable loss. Uh, <laughs> Thank you both for being good sports as ever. Thank you very much, Helen. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Emma. Thank you very much. Uh, go and watch Tar uh, at the cinema, everybody, and let us know what you thought. And we'll be with you again next month. Goodbye. <laughs>